All right. So Ginny gave you a little preview of some of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but before we get into that, I want to just start this morning. If you don't know me, I'll just introduce myself. I think most of you do, but uh, my name is Leah. I am the pastor here at Haven Berkeley Faith Community, and I'm so grateful to share the space with all of you today. And I want to start our conversation this morning by inviting kind of what what's just happening, a moment of reflection together for all of us. And specifically, I'm going to invite you to think about, reflect on for a moment, some area of your life where at some point you might have seen something meaningfully shift for you and some shift that allowed you to step more fully into who you are or how you're able to show up in the world. So this could be a shift in a relationship, a shift in how you think about something or understand it or or faith. It could be a move geographically or maybe uh, changing jobs, but look for some place where you saw something develop in you, something shift and help you kind of be, grow more into the way you are showing up in the world. And And if something comes to mind, let me just take a moment to see if something comes to mind for for folks. And if something comes to mind, I want to invite you to consider kind of like, where did that start? What was the starting point of that shift? Where was the genesis of it? If there was a moment or a series of moments that kind of kicked off that shift for you, what might that have been? And then I'd invite you to consider what did it take to move forward from that Genesis point into bringing the growth and change for the better in your life? Where did it start? And then how did it move forward? Well, you can continue to ponder on that. Um, We're rounding the bend on this series we've been in, in the midst of throughout the fall into the winter called Community Evolving. And so over the last few months, we've been considering how our understanding, including spiritual understanding, can grow and change over time, as well as what it means to do that together alongside one another. And so as we begin to wrap this series, and we are kind of starting to wrap it, I thought it might be interesting to look to that era of the earliest Jesus-following communities um, and consider some of the major shifts that happened for them after Jesus died, after he was resurrected, returned in some way to the divine. So over these last two teachings, this will be the second to last, and we'll do one more in February um, in this set of conversations, we're going to look at this A story that's kind of in two parts. Um, that's found in the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, um, the Book of Acts, like Ginny mentioned. And so we think of it as kind of like maybe a case study from the early church in community evolving. 
Uh, we're going to see where Jesus followers discerned a new thing that the divine seemed to be doing in their midst, and then had to make decisions about how they as a collective would respond and potentially organize differently. What did community evolving look like for those early people of faith, and how might their experience inform our own evolving? So the story we're looking today is honestly one of my favorites in the whole New Testament. It's it's a story that's actually had a pretty big impact on my own journey of evolving. And so by extension, you might say, has been part of shaping what Haven has become, even though I don't think I've actually taught on this story by my own records uh, since probably like the first year or so of Haven. So I think we're due. Um so this story from Acts begin, brings together, like Jenny mentioned, two characters who meet under pretty unusual circumstances. One of them is someone we're somewhat familiar with, probably, Simon Peter, the close friend, follower of Jesus, started as a fisherman, and is now an itinerant preacher, central leader in this early Jewish following community. And the other is this character who might be new to a lot of us. He's a commander in the Roman army, and his name is Cornelius. And it's a rather long story, so I'm going to summarize how, you know, the first half, and then we'll actually start reading partway through. So the story starts by introducing us to this Cornelius the Centurion, which means in the Roman army at the time, he's the commander over a hundred soldiers. So this is a man of great authority, great status. He's stationed in a place called Caesarea. That's where he lives, which at the time would be the regional center of Roman government. It's the capital, essentially, the Roman capital in the area. And it's the local headquarters for the Roman army. So when we meet Cornelius, though, we don't see him commanding soldiers or fulfilling other government duties. We find him praying to Yahweh, the God of Israel. As Luke, the storyteller, tells us, he actually often does. Because apparently Cornelius is more than just a tough Roman soldier. He also seemed to be one of a minority of people known in, to the Jewish people in that time as God-fearers. They lived alongside the Jewish people in the ancient world. They adopted a lot of their spiritual practices. And so Luke tells us that the soldier and his whole household prayed to God regularly. They gave generously to the poor and so on. But something important to remember about these this God-fearing community, as they were called, is that folks like Cornelius, this is also true of the eunuch from Ethiopia that we meet in Acts a few chapters earlier, these folks are worshipers of Yahweh, but they are not full converts to Judaism, okay? So people like Cornelius were not circumcised, they didn't go through ritual cleansing, they didn't observe Jewish dietary law, they didn't practice the sacrifices that they did, but they did have a real respect for the Jewish faith and those who practiced it and the God that they worshiped, okay? So the story begins with this Cornelius praying. And as he prays, you know, like we heard, he has an incredible vision. Um, and the vision is of an angel. And this angel gives him specific instructions. And so the angel tells him actually to send some people to the town about 30 miles away called Joppa. 
And there, the people, the people who are working for Cornelius are supposed to look for a man that we know of, but he doesn't know. Um, That's Simon Peter. So Cornelius immediately follows these divine instructions, and he sends two of his servants and one of his soldiers off to find this Peter and bring him back to him. And then the focus shifts, like the camera is just like cut to the next day. And all of a sudden we're there in Joppa. And in Joppa, we find Peter on the roof of a house he's staying in. And he's also praying. And it's around noon. It's lunchtime. Like Cornelius, he has this vision while he's praying. And the vision needs a bit of cultural explanation to make sense. So, of course, like all of, the, of his fellow Jewish community members, Peter kept kosher. He followed important dietary restrictions that had long been passed down through the generations and were a significant way of observing the faith and a cultural marker for what it meant to be a Jewish person. And this meant that Peter, just like Jesus, just like all their other Jewish friends, did not eat a number of different animals, which the law of Moses had deemed unclean or impure. Um, And so the practice of observing these cleanliness codes was actually taken so seriously that when you looked at animals, if you had quote unquote clean animals come into contact with animals that were not clean, then they believed that the uncleanliness basically contaminated the clean animals. Okay. So the Jews that the Jews were permitted to eat. So essentially nothing that had had even any contact with an unclean animal would be considered permissible to eat. Um, And so it's something clearly they take very seriously and work hard to observe in order to honor Yahweh. And that's kind of core, important to know, um, to understand this vision. So while Peter's praying on the roof, he's hungry, he's waiting for lunch, and he has this picture of a sort of like divine tablecloth being lowered in front of him, um, and it's filled with animals. And the animals are a mix of these clean and unclean kinds of animals, which means, of course, as I just said, because of cross-contamination, essentially the whole thing would be unclean. And as he sees this sheet lowering, he hears a voice and the voice says, kill and eat. But Peter is shocked and responds, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Well, the vision is persistent because this doesn't just happen once. It happens again and again three times total. And each time Peter is corrected after that response and told by the voice, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, dramatically, as soon as this happens, the third time voices are heard from below. Peter goes downstairs and greets this set of visitors, these three men that have been sent by the Roman centurion in Caesarea, and they tell him that the commander would like Peter to come to his house so he can hear what this Peter has to say. Peter responds by doing something pretty unusual, inviting these non-Jewish people into the Jewish home that he's residing in and encouraging them to be their guests for the night so that the next day they can do something even more strange. He gathers a couple of his friends from their local church there, and they go together with these visitors to meet this Roman Gentile in his home in the most Roman Gentile place around. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, starting with verse 24. They arrived in Caesarea the following day, and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
And as Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside while many others were assembled. And Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Very specific instructions, right? So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. And then they put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. He is the one All the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed as the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. All right, y'all. I don't know if in this long story you felt it, but this is a revolutionary moment. It's an evolutionary moment. Something that has been radically altered about the way the kingdom of God that Jesus had spoke of will be embodied. 
And because of that transformative moment, what comes after will never be the same as what had come before. For the first time in the history of this Yahweh-centered faith, the good news of the divine scene in Jesus has been shared and God's presence has manifested through the Holy Spirit being received by a group of people that look different than ever before because their kitchens are not kosher. Their Sabbaths may not be restful. And if they are men like Cornelius, their foreskins are likely intact. Now, that might seem like a weird thing to note to us, but for the community of early Jesus followers, it was pretty notable and frankly shocking. They were aware. Since the arrival of Jesus, people like Peter had seen the kingdom of God advancing. It had become more and more inclusive, bringing in all kinds of folks from the outskirts of religious life. The women, the poor, the lepers, the Samaritans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And yet, even in the early church, that had continued to expand. But thus far, nearly all the people the good news had been shared with. They all had the same thing in common. They were all born Jewish or were converts to Judaism. Essentially, if they were men, they were circumcised until this shocking moment. And this story of an evolutionary move forward also becomes quickly one of the first scandals of the early church. We'll see this more in two weeks. But shortly after the incident, Peter's called by other Jewish followers of Jesus to explain why he's fraternizing with and baptizing these Gentiles, these uncircumcised people. And before too long, a whole council of early church leaders is convened to decide what to do about the Gentile problem. But what evolution is exactly taking place? Who is evolving here? In what way? And how? In many Bibles or study guides from the book of Acts, this passage is titled, The Conversion of Cornelius. But is that the best way to understand this story? To be sure, Cornelius's faith is certainly evolving. He and his families and friends, they're moving forward in a significant way. Their spiritual journey is unfolding. The divine has met them where they're at, and God is inviting them into more, and they accept the invitation, and they experience significant life-transforming blessing as a result, but Cornelius and his friends are not the only ones invited into transformation, and maybe not the ones invited into the most significant transformation. In preparing for this teaching, I read a number of commentaries And two reflections that I found particularly helpful, both came, perhaps not surprisingly, um, from biblical scholars who are also Black women, Dr. Olive Hemings and Dr. Mitzi Smith. And as Dr. Hemings describes in our story, this text is, quote, not a story of Cornelius's conversion, but a story of Peter's liberation. The God-fearing and just Cornelius waits for Peter's awakening so that he may receive the good news of God's salvation. If Cornelius and his friends are going to continue on their unfolding of their spiritual journey, Peter and his friends need to wake up and they need to evolve. 
so that this new spiritual movement that all of them are invited into can evolve. At the center of Peter's evolution or his liberation, as Dr. Hemmings described it, is a new understanding best encapsulated in that response of his. After hearing Cornelius' story and processing that the same God who was speaking to him had spoken to this uncircumcised soldier in front of him, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism, he says. What exactly does that mean? The actual Greek words that are translated for us here shows no favoritism. They say something a bit more obscure, but I think also interesting in the original language. A more exact translation would be, God is not a face receiver, or God does not receive the face. The Greek word for face in this case is more expansive than just like this part of the head. Um, It includes that, of course, but it also means like the general outward appearance. As Dr. Mitzi Smith explains, the face refers to physical characteristics and to generally humanly discernible distinctions, such as ethnicity, gender, age, and race. In other words, God's not persuaded by outward appearances. God doesn't discriminate based on outward appearances. When Peter and his friends looked at Cornelius and his household, they likely had bigger internal biases to overcome even than their concern about their ethnicity or their cultural practices. Remember, Cornelius was a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers were the violent occupiers of the Jewish homeland. They were also the ones who, at the urging of Jewish religious leaders, had just killed Jesus. Crucifixion is a a kind of execution that comes from Roman soldiers. You might understand why Peter would be inclined to look at Cornelius with a fair amount of suspicion. But here in this moment, the divine is revealing to Cornelius that if he allows his own own internal biases, some of which might have been developed for good reason, to keep Peter and his friends from harm, perhaps. But if he allows those biases to limit where he will follow the divine, if he, Peter, becomes a face receiver, he'll miss what God is doing to evolve this sacred kingdom in his midst. He will miss the work of Jesus expanding. He will get in the way of God's evolutionary work, for God is not a face receiver. God is not, as the King James translates it, a respecter of persons. God shows no favoritism. So what may we learn from this story about how spiritual evolution can happen? See a few components of the evolving process that we might take from this story as maybe a potential case study that consider how we might um, see these components play out in our own day and time. And the first component of this story I see is a powerful, a set of powerful spiritual experiences, right? Both Cornelius and Peter are led to this encounter in Caesarea through having powerful spiritual experiences first. 
The story starts for each of them in prayer. Each of them has a vision. Cornelius sees an angel, gives him specific instructions. Peter has a picture of this sheet of animals lowered before him and his own instructions from the divine. Neither of these men is actually a catalyst in this story. It is God who is driving the evolution forward. But each of these leaders are playing their part. They are praying. They are seeking the divine. They are inviting God to speak to them. They are open to spiritual experience. And so they're given an opportunity to partner with what the spirit wants to do in their time. And it starts with making room for spiritual experiences. Now, as I've been praying myself in recent weeks about kind of where the divine might be leading us this year, I personally have had a sense that we too need to be making really intentional space with openness and expectation for genuine spiritual experiences. That if we want to continue to evolve as a spiritual community, like we've been talking about for the last few months, that that means finding ways in our contexts to encounter the divine, hear what messages she might be speaking to us. When I was on sabbatical last summer, I was praying, right, during this personal retreat. Some of you have heard this, asking God if there was a new insight, a new revelation I was supposed to, like, bring back from sabbatical with me, feeling kind of some pressure for that to happen. And then I felt like if I heard anything, it was a correction. That's that's not really your job anymore, just to hear on behalf of the community, your community, that which is keeping Haven moving while you are taking a break, that your community is the receiver of revelation for Haven now. And as I've continued to meditate and consider in these six months or so since I've returned, what I've come to sense is that that what was being spoken, what I was sensing, there wasn't a one-time thing. Because you're on sabbatical, now the community will hear from you. And when you return, it's your job again. That wasn't it. It wasn't about coming back, hearing the clear word you all had, and then moving forward. I kind of hoped that might be the case, but no. (laughs) Rather, I think what the Spirit was speaking to me about was an ongoing process, an orientation, a way of growing with the divine that can unfold and evolve over time. And that process is rooted in ongoing practices that open each of us up to connecting personally with the sacred and then having room to give voice to what we sense the spirit is saying to us. So this is something I hope we can really prioritize this year finding new ways for each of us to grow spiritually, to connect with the divine, whether that's through new spiritual and creative practices like Luca led folks through last week with his creative meditation session, or maybe returning to practices that might have been meaningful to some of us in the past, but for whatever reasons, for a season we may have stepped away from, and now we might feel ready to engage in a deeper way, right? Something like listening prayer or studying scripture together. Still, as the story shows, having the powerful spiritual encounter, that's that's just the first step. It's not the only thing needed for evolution to take place. The second component I see is a willingness to risk. A willingness to risk. 
both Cornelius and Peter were motivated to take action after they had their own experiences. It wasn't enough to just be moved internally. That movement actually required some external follow-through. And for both of them, that follow-through came with a, a degree of risk. One might imagine the social risks that Cornelius took in terms of his reputation, his respect in the community, uh, to immediately like send, after having this prayer vision, for this poor itinerant Jewish preacher to come to his home. And then he goes and invites all of his closest friends and family to his house to hear what this person, who hopefully will come, has to say. He wasn't keeping his God-fearing status kind of just like, you know, close to his chest. He's letting everyone know, even though probably most of the Romans he knew were not praying to Yahweh. They would be polytheists who participated in worship of the Roman deities that were endorsed by the state. But Cornelius is not held back by concerns to his reputation. He takes the risk. Peter, in the same way, thanks to the insight of his vision, is willing to go. He doesn't fully get it. He's yet to understand that God is not a face receiver, but he senses enough of the spirit in his midst that he's also willing to risk. He's willing to go. He's willing to visit a place he and other early church leaders have never been. They never went there with Jesus into the home of a Gentile. And because he risks and follows the divine prompting he's given, he's able to experience more transformation. He experiences the liberation that Olive Hemings described. And that brings us to the third step, the third component I notice in the evolution. A humble openness to expanding awareness. A humble openness to expanding awareness. Peter's liberation and Cornelius's spiritual unfolding are invitations to both of them into an awareness of the God that is bigger than any of them. Sometimes I think it's with folks like Peter who think they know and understand the divine and what God is up to in the world, that this kind of expansion of understanding can be the most challenging. It takes humility to recognize and see where you might have been wrong, at least in part, that God might be doing a new thing, that as much as you understood before, there's still more to understand. So early in this series, I shared um, one model of spirituality evolving that you know some people may find helpful. And as I think about this story and this liberation moment that Peter, as well as the early church he's leading, is going through here, another model I've seen at some point through the years came to mind. One that's similar maybe to what we talked about before, but in a lot of ways, much simpler. And this model, I have a slide of. It's, I drew it myself. It's not high art. <laughs> it's just a series of stick figures. And each, each panel, one, two, three, four, involves the stick figure and like a circle. And the circle, the stick figure is the person, the spiritual sojourner. The circle is ultimate truth or reality, ultimate reality. And so in the first stage, truth is above 
It's up there. It's God. It's transcendent. We know it's above us. Uh, We have so much to learn above us, and we find ourselves reaching towards the heavens in some way or towards our parent as a small child. Um, The second stage, the truth is where we are. We feel some mastery of it, some capacity to hold it and work with it. It's kind of on our level, we feel. Sometimes there might even be a third stage where like adolescence, we perhaps feel like, ah, over the truth. It's I'm like on top of it. It's like, whatever. It's kind of irrelevant to me. I can decide how I want to deal with it however I want. And then there may be this fourth stage where we realize that the truth, the ultimate reality is everywhere. It's all around us. It's way bigger than we ever knew. We're humbled before it. We're just the tiny little figure in the midst of a great mystery. I think this is the revelation that both Cornelius and Peter are having in their own way. Whatever they thought they knew about the world, maybe they're somewhere in number two, maybe even one for Cornelius, right? Whatever they thought they knew about the spiritual realm, about God, it was not everything. There is more. When encountering something outside their worldview, outside their norm of experience, they don't shut it out. I think sometimes when we're in two or three, we can do that. We can rationalize it. We can let our confirmation bias block our capacity to really take in this thing that is new. We don't have to reckon with it if we can just find some way to say this doesn't apply, right? But they don't do that. Each in their own way show the humility that allows their understanding to expand and evolve. And I invite us to consider how might each of us in our own time and cultural place need to do the same? All right, you can take it down. Of course, this story laid the groundwork for many of us, perhaps all of us here, who become a part of this Jesus-centered tradition without being born or becoming full converts to Judaism. If this hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't be here. But the implications go beyond that. Julia A. Foote was born in 1823 to two parents who were former slaves. Julia came to Christian faith, was passionately involved in the life of the church. She was a preacher. She became the first woman to be ordained as a deacon and the second as an elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And in her autobiography, Miss Foote called upon words from Acts 10, kind of speak her calling. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for this wonderful salvation that snatched me as a brand from the burning, even me, a poor, ignorant girl. And will he not do for all? What he did for me. Yes, yes. God is no respecter of person. As Dr. Mitzi Smith points out, the truth that God shows no favoritism gave hope to a Black woman familiar with slavery's dehumanization of the Black race, the racism that prohibited her from receiving communion before all whites had been served and the ecclesial dogma that declared that God didn't call women to preach. Julia Foote is part of the evolution of awareness that God shows no favoritism. 
when I found myself as a seminary student and young pastor in training, looking ahead at the kind of spiritual community I felt called to start, but told essentially by the system I was in that the church wasn't meant to fully include our LGBTQ family and friends. It was this story that played a huge part in convincing me differently. I remember one particular moment in the church I was working at at the time, laying hands on a, on a gay female friend of mine who'd recently begun attending the church along with her beautiful wife and kids and noticing so powerfully the Holy Spirit coming on her in this powerful way, not unlike what Peter noticed when he was praying for Cornelius. And my own ministry, and by extension, Haven, even the opening prayer we've composed and pray each time we gather is part of the evolution of awareness that God shows no favoritism. Amen? We are here because we are a part of a faith and a spiritual community that is ever-evolving. And it's our turn to play our part in that continued evolution. So friends, may we make space this year and beyond to nurture together powerful spiritual experiences, to trust one another as we name what we believe the divine is speaking in our midst. May we take risks trying new things, even if they're scary or we're not sure how they're going to turn out, to follow where the spirit seems to be leading us. And may we be open to an ever-expanding awareness of the mystery of the sacred, that the ultimate reality we call God, that which Jesus embodied and undergirds this kingdom he preached, is more expansive than we can imagine. And we are invited to grow in it for as long as we are open to do so. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of discussion. Spirit, I am grateful for that revelation, that moment, that aha, that Peter and those gathered with him had, that you are not a receiver of the face, though we name that in our brokenness so often we are. In this community, we've talked about um, the idols in our midst. And just as we name, we, we long not to be captive to the idols of racism, of gender bias, heteronormativity. We long not to be receivers of the face. And yet we also recognize transformation is a lifelong process. I thank you that you are a God who is gracious. You were gracious with Peter and his friends. You are gracious with us still. May we be open to the new things you are speaking in our midst. May we be receptive to our own moments of revelation. May we take risks as we seek to step sometimes in new directions. 
And may we sense, as we do, a greater awareness of who you are and what this kingdom is, what it means to be in good relationship as you bring flourishing to the world. Amen. All right, so we're going to go um, into groups of, you know, four to six or so for 10 minutes. Um, and folks in Zoom can chat as well. And I have a few questions we'll put up on the screen. Um, and you're welcome to consider them or whatever else feels good. So uh, the first is consider sharing from your reflection at the beginning. Do you have anything there you want to tell us about um, or tell the people in your group about a meaningful shift in you becoming who you are and where did that start and how, what moved it along? And, and now that you've heard this story about Peter and Cornelius, are there any places of resonance with their evolution? Um, or um, we can look at these three components I named, spiritual experiences, willingness to risk, and openness to expanding awareness. Which of those come most naturally to you? Which, feel, which do you feel most drawn to, most appealing? Which feel the most challenging? Why might that be? And then uh, finally, thinking of our haven, Venn diagram, our values of safety, diversity, Jesus-centered spirituality, where do you see those at play in this story? And what guidance might that story give us as we evolve in living out these values? So those are some things you can consider, or again, whatever feels live to you. Um, we'll, we'll do that for 10 minutes, and then we'll come back for closing worship.